right? How are we doing, everybody? It is 5-6-20. I am your host, Will Reddington, and welcome to another episode of Red Talk. Today's episode is one of my all-time favorites, Kent McDill, the only Chicago Bulls beat writer to cover all six championship seasons. He joins me to discuss ESPN's The Last Dance, his personal experiences with one of the greatest teams of all time, and we, of course, get to hear some Michael Jordan stories. Kent covered MJ's entire career in Chicago and has written three books about the Bulls. If These Walls Could Talk, 100 Things a Bulls Fan Should Know or Do Before They Die, Tales from the Chicago Bulls Locker Room with Bill Winnington. Kent's one-of-a-kind insight can only come straight from the source. I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you all do too. Our show is brought to you by O'Shea's Irish Pub. O'Shea's has carry-out and drinks available from 3 to 9 and 3 to 11 on weekends, 956 Baxter Avenue. Support local businesses and don't be afraid to make that weekly stop at O'Shea's. All right, let's get it going. All right, today we welcome on a very special guest, Kent McDill, the lone Chicago Bulls beat writer for all of the Michael Jordan era in Chicago. Kent, it is an honor to have you on, sir. Could you tell our listeners how long and for whom that you covered the Chicago Bulls? I covered the Bulls from 1985 to 1988 for United Press International in Chicago, but in that case, I was just covering the home games. In 1988, the Daily Herald, which is the big suburban paper in Chicago, hired me to cover the Bulls and travel with them. And so from 1988 to 1999, I went to every single game with the exception of like when my kids were born, I decided to skip a game there. Um, But um, and I am the only writer who covered all six of the championship teams as a beat writer. That's what my I have a tombstone already made up. I got that on there. So. That's very cool. I'd say that that is a sports writer reporter's dream to experience that many championships in such a short time. But uh, this Last Dance documentary has kind of taken the world by storm. It is the quarantine savior. It's possibly the most popular sports documentary of all time, but we are 60% through it. Uh, What have you thought about the Last Dance documentary so far? I've enjoyed it. Um, I think we're seeing some footage um, that we've never seen before, which is what's making it interesting. I'm glad it's not just a just a rehash of old documentaries. I mean, how many documentaries have been done on Michael and how many have been done on the Bulls? Um, so it's it's not just a rehash, which makes it fresh and entertaining. Um, Michael's uh, involvement is huge. I mean, the, the interviews that he's sitting for and the things that he's saying make the entire difference. That's what that's what's selling this thing. Uh, like you said, you know, every Sunday now for a couple hours, we got something to do. And when May 17th rolls around, we're going to be done. And I just wonder if that's it. I just wonder if I'm never going to have to tell my stories ever again once the uh, ESPN thing's over. It's hard to say. It's It seems like somehow Michael Jordan is as popular as ever right now uh, in terms of the social media universe. But yeah, exactly like you said, the interviews from Michael and Scotty and Phil, they've been incredible. And you can have the best content for a documentary ever. And if you don't have that type of personal interview, it's not going to be as good as it could be. And they've been fantastic. But you're actually shown in the documentary with MJ in the training room with the one of a kind experience that you have with all of this. Were you surprised that they didn't actually like interview for the documentary? (laughs) Honest to God, it never it was never a thought in my mind until somebody started bringing it up a couple of weeks before the documentary started, somebody contacted me and said, Hey, are you in this thing? 
And I ESPN never contacted me, so I had no idea whether I was or not. And then I found out that they interviewed 106 people for this documentary. And I have to think that having been with the team for as long as I was, that I have to be one of the top 106th most knowledgeable fans about the um, era. I'm, I'm not the sort uh, to want to eat my own liver and get upset about it. And I'm not, but an awful lot of people have asked. And, you know, it's like the fact that I didn't sit for an interview, that's really no big deal. Um, I'm in it. Um, my kids have point, you know, they point me out. They see me before I see me. Um, and other people are aware that I was uh, involved. So that's that's all that really matters. Absolutely. I mean, you were the one that broke the news that Scottie Pippen wasn't going to come back and play for the Bulls during that 98 season. And I, I saw in an article that you were mentioned in that they called you like this reporter and stuff like that and wouldn't mention your name. And that has to be frustrating with your life's work out there to just not get the type of recognition that you deserve for something like that. Yeah, but I don't know what it's going to do for me. Um, what's funny is that Pippen story was the second half of the second hour. Um I mean, they spent uh, easily 30 minutes talking about that story and it was my story and, and not, not, I mean, alone, I was the only person who had that story. And the fact that they didn't interview me about it, that's one thing, but they never identified me. They, like you said, on at least two different occasions, they said, Scotty told a reporter and I'm like raising my hand in my, my basement going, I, I'm right here. I'm the one. And uh, that was kind of, that was kind of odd, but you know, so be it. Yeah, nothing you could do now, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm going to demand that we all um, boycott the rest of the ESPN programming and see what kind of effect that has. That's going to be hard to do. But if you tell me to do that, I will do it. <laughs> That's not necessary. Thanks. In this past week's episode, they showed the strained relationship between Michael and the media that developed in the 93 season. And we also have seen Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman have certain issues with the media in the late 90s. Uh, did you ever experience any of that animosity firsthand? I was there every day. Um, the It became, you know, 93, Michael was dealing with the gambling issues. And, um, you know, in 92, he'd come off the Jordan rules and his attitude towards the media changed at that point. And um, what was odd about it all was he decided he wasn't going to talk to the media anymore. And then Scotty said, well, if Michael's not going to talk to the media anymore, I'm not going to talk to the media anymore. And Horace Grant is going to do everything that Scotty did. So Horace Grant decided he wasn't going to talk to the media. So all we had on a regular basis were John Paxson, Bill Cartwright, and B.J. Armstrong, among the guys who were major contributors. I mean, Stacey King would have talked to us. He would have come to our homes to talk to us. But that's not, that's not who we wanted to talk to. Um, and it all became unpleasant, and the NBA started fining the Bulls to saying that the, those players had to make themselves available. And it became a um, contentious relationship, which it wasn't before. Um, uh, I guess it's human nature when Michael was going to face nothing but gambling questions that he said, you know what, <clears throat> I just don't want to answer those questions anymore. And the media is the sort, many of them are the sort, if you say, hey, don't ask any gambling questions, they're not going to pay attention to that because that's the story and that's what they're going for and that's their job. So that was just part of uh, a difficult time in the third year of the first three-peat. It had to be frustrating for MJ, like just 
having five or six storylines develop within every single game every night as the best player on the best team and then to consistently get the same questions about things going on off the floor. But earlier in the series, they showed MJ beating the Cavs, the shot over Elo and having some choice words for the crowd and some members of the media. Did you ever write anything that made Michael Jordan mad? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I did. He was my, – my initial um, relationship with him was from when I was working for UPI, and he knew me by my first name, but he never read anything that I wrote. And then when I joined the newspaper, the um, writer who preceded me as the Bulls writer had written something that Michael was not happy about. And so the very first thing I had to do when I got the new job was go up to Michael and say, hey, I, I'm not him. Um, I don't represent what he wrote. It was a true story, but it wasn't one that Michael wanted to get out. And honestly, um, the only, I mean, Mike, Mike might have had words with me based on what the media said in total. But as far as anything I wrote specifically, um, he didn't. In fact... You know, um, I was just thinking about this today. I haven't given this a thought in a long time, but, um, you know, he had a um, a boycott of Sports Illustrated at one point because they had told him to give up baseball and go back to basketball. The cover story said, bag it, Michael. And so he decided he wasn't going to talk to Sports Illustrated anymore. And at the time, I was the um, freelancer working with Sports Illustrated to give them anything Bulls related out of Chicago. And Michael knew that. And yet when I was asking him Sports Illustrated questions, he knew they were, he answered them. So his boycott of Sports Illustrated didn't extend to a boycott of me, which was another thing that he didn't, I mean, another way he didn't have to benefit me. Yeah, that's awesome to have that type of relationship with them to where something like that doesn't carry over. Even in 2020, the United Center is still like one of the only places that grants media members courtside seats consistently. You were obviously very close to all of this, but you literally were so close to the game while it was played. Do you have any cool stories of things that you might have overheard on the court from Jordan or Scotty or Rodman? I have several of them, but there's one that's really, really good. Um, This was early on. We were playing in Dallas against the Mavericks, and um, our courtside seats were right at midcourt. Um, and um, it was a end of the second quarter. There were maybe 20 seconds left. The Bulls had the ball. They were waiting for a last shot, and Michael was standing near the top of the or near the half court line, just dribbling with Derek Harper guarding him. And as he's dribbling, he's just obviously waiting for a particular time to start the play. Derek Harper said to Michael, what time do you go? Meaning at what's, what mark of the clock are you going to take off? And Michael said seven. And at seven seconds left, Michael faked right, went left, faked Derek Harper out, went down, drove the lane, passed the ball off to Scotty and made a basket. But it's just the kind of thing. I mean, you wouldn't realize that that kind of communication is going on between competitors. I mean, why would Michael tell Derek that? Except for the fact that's the kind of thing that goes on all the time, you know. Uh, I got fallen on many times, but I got fallen on once by Charles Barkley. That was um, that was a that was a big hit. Yeah, that couldn't have felt good, but it's also no. very cool to say. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I had Charles Barkley sweat all over me, so I don't know how cool that was. That's a good point. There's no denying that Jerry Krause has kind of been painted as the villain of The Last Dance. Uh, You experienced this entire ride firsthand. What did you think of Jerry Krause then and now? I I wish that wasn't the way that it was all presented. I wish that hadn't happened. Um, uh, Jerry was a a difficult guy. He... um, Anybody that's ever seen a picture of him knows that he wasn't built like a normal human being. He was short and squat. And and I'm amazed at the number of times Michael ripped on him, uh, is allowing us to see him rip on it. Not not that he, I mean, he obviously did it, and we're now aware that he did it all the time. But the fact that that shows up so many times in this documentary is just amazing. But, um, you know, I, I just know enough about human nature to know that he probably didn't have the greatest time growing up being looking the way he did and all that. And I know he played catcher um, at Bradley University, um, probably because he was already down there, you know, in terms of where his body was allowing him to be. (laughs) Um, But I just wish people had treated him with respect. Um, I actually just recently we were cleaning out some, an area of the house and found a Christmas card I got from Jerry in 1997 um, thanking me for treating him with respect. And I just think that's the way that we should be all treating people anyway. Um, so I always felt bad about it. Um, sure. He shouldn't have been so adamant about breaking the team up in 1998. And even what's weird about it is if that was his intention, which it clearly was, why be so public about it? Why, why not keep it to yourself and let it all happened in the summer of 1998 rather than happen basically in the summer of 1997. Um, I don't understand that. Uh, Jerry, Jerry was desperate to have people give him credit for what had happened. He wanted, and he deserved it. He wanted credit for picking Scotty Pippen. He wanted credit for picking Horace Grant. He wanted credit for picking Tony Kukoc and picking up Luke Longley and making the trade for Dennis Rodman and all those things he deserved credit for, but he wanted it to be public he wanted Phil to give Jerry public credit for moving him from assistant coach to head coach when he fired Doug Collins. He wanted a public statement from all those people saying, yeah, you were good at your job. And nobody would give him that. And and eventually, human nature being what it is, he decided that he was going to make a change. Yeah, and that has to be frustrating for him going through that building the team and not receiving the credit for it at the time, and especially not really now within this documentary, but also from Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson's perspective, they're doing a lot of great things too. So I can see, understand them thinking like, yeah, you know, I this is me, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm making the plays, like this isn't him doing this. And it is kind of wild to see how long-winded and lengthy like these statements are that just kind of tear him down. And it, it is a bummer that he can't really defend himself and right. he's not in the documentary either. Well, um, a friend of mine, Casey Johnson, a beat writer now for the Chicago Tribune, apparently was working on a uh, book with Jerry at the time of his passing. And he has, um, the publisher has allowed him to um, put out some excerpts from the book. Uh, And one of them I just saw, I haven't had a chance to read it, but um, in the book, Jerry was complimenting Michael on his skills and talents. It's, It's a shame I don't know if Jerry was still alive, would they have included all that in the documentary? I don't know. But if we're going to assume that they would, then I'm glad that Jerry's not here to 
hear it. Yeah, I mean, he would just be getting torn to shreds by every inch of the media 23 years later. I mean, you would think everybody would want to have a reaction from Jerry and and I don't know what Jerry would have said. And it would just it would have been ugly. So we're all I mean, it's unfortunate that he passed away, but we're all better off in regards to how he's been treated through this documentary. Definitely. Uh, in Michael Jordan's own words, he was too competitive. He had a competition problem, not a gambling problem. Do you have a, did you have any moments where you were personally involved in a wager with MJ? <laughs> Do you know the answer to this question, Will? I might have heard one or two answers, but I thought, you know, I mean, he, he may have 30 wager. I mean, this guy was apparently gambling on literally everything. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell the big one in a sec, but I'm going to tell you a little one. Um, there was an occasion... Um, I don't know if it, I don't, it wasn't the most famous night of it, but whenever we were in Philadelphia, everybody went to Atlantic city. Um, it was like an hour's drive or something. And one night I was in Harris, I guess, and just walking around I, the people I was with were out doing something else. And I was just walking around and I walked past the high roller, um, area for blackjack. It was like, I mean, you were playing a thousand dollars a hand or whatever, and I heard somebody call out my name and it was Michael and he called me into the area. Um, I would not have qualified in any way, shape or form otherwise. And he just asked how I was doing. And, and I watched him play three hands of blackjack at $10,000 a hand. And then I left because I was perspiring. I, I, I was going to pass out from, from watching that and it wasn't my money. So, okay. So now the more famous story. The best story, I was on a radio program this morning talking to the other person who was involved in this story. Mike Mulligan was the beat writer for the Chicago Sun-Times at the same time I was a beat writer for the Daily Herald. And we were in Salt Lake City after a game. No, I guess maybe we talked to him before the game. And we were going to go to Sacramento the next day, but we had a day off in between. And among NBA cities, Sacramento is has the least entertainment available anywhere. So um, Michael Jordan, whose name will be Michael throughout the story, was asking Mike and me what we were going to do in Sacramento. And Mike and I had already decided that we were going to go to Reno and spend a night gambling there. And we told Michael and he pulled out a hundred dollar bill out of his wallet and gave it to Mike and said, bet this on one hand of blackjack for me. So we said we would. And so we get to Sacramento the next day and we're driving. It's like a two hour drive to Reno. And we were talking about what we, all the different things that could happen in a hand of blackjack that would cause us to require, cause us to cough up another hundred bucks. If we had gotten eights or aces, the rule is you have to split them. I mean, it's not a rule, but it's, you know, standard operating procedure. If it was in a situation where we had to double down, we were going to have to come up with another hundred. Um, and then Mike said, why don't we just tell Michael that he won blackjack, not he won his hand and give him a hundred dollars and then instead play it the hundred on 23 red in one spin of blackjack of roulette. If we win, we get $3,500 we'll give Michael the hundred for winning his blackjack hand. And he and I would split, Mike and I would split $3,400. And I said, it was a bad idea. I didn't think the gambling gods would like it. Um, it just seemed wrong somehow. 
So we get to Reno, and Mike didn't want to gamble right away. He didn't want to gamble um, Michael's money right away. He wanted to wait until he was with a dealer that he liked. So the very first thing we did was sit down at a roulette table, very first spin, 23 red. And Mike was so mad at me. I mean, to this day, he mentioned it on the radio this morning. Um, every time we talk, he mentions that I cost him $1,700 because we didn't put the money down. And the thing is, that story could only have happened to Michael Jordan. I mean, 23 red. I mean, he's yeah. 23 red, you know. Mike walked away from me at that point. Um, we were just hanging out in the casino, but not together. And then finally we decided we were going to play um, the Michael's 100 so we sat down at a blackjack table and played a few hands and I was actually at the first point and Mike was at the last point. And finally Mike says, Hey Kent. And I look up and he's got the hundred dollar chip and he says, I'm going to play it. And nobody at the table knew why it was special or anything. But so Mike puts it down and the cards are dealt and I'm looking at my cards to see what I was going to do. And Mike says, Kent look. And I look and Jordan got blackjack. So that's $250 to Michael Jordan, right? So, and of course, only that's that's Michael. So anyway, the next day we go back to, we go back to Sacramento that night. And the next morning I was up pretty early. I was in the gift shop and um, at the hotel and Mike, Michael was up um, getting ready to go to shoot around. And he sees me and he goes, Hey, 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 hey what happened to my hundred? And I had agreed on the way back that I would let Mike tell the story because he's the one who, place the bet. So I said to Michael, I can't tell you. Can't tell you what happened. It's Mike's story. He'll have to tell you. And Michael goes, no, no, no. Tell me. I won't, I won't let Mike, I won't let Mike know that you told me. Just tell me. I need to know what happened to my hundred dollars. I said, Michael, I, I cannot tell you. I'm, it's not my story to tell. It's Mike's. So Michael Jordan, what, nine inches taller than me, leans down so that we're face to face. He hit like eyeball to eyeball. And he just looks at me. And then he stood up and he said, I got blackjack. I'm like, what, the, what, what, how, 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 how could he know that? Um, and I didn't, I didn't admit it, but to this day, it's the spookiest, one of the spookiest things I, he just, there was no question. I don't, what, do my eyes say blackjack? I don't know, but he, he had it figured out and, and he was right. That guy is not of this planet, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, uh, you know, Larry Bird called him God. So. Might have, might have been uh, something to do with it. Yeah, I think it's fair. Uh, Kent, you've written three books on the Bulls, which I listed in today's intro. Uh, that's where our listeners can read all of your insight on not only the Bulls, but what it's like to be a sports reporter following that team. Was there a Bull that you had the best personal relationship or any that you still keep in touch with today? Uh, John Paxson is one of my best friends. Um, when, when we uh, started working together, he was on the team, and we, and we know – especially now from thanks to the documentary, we know so much about all the different big shots that he hit over the years. But from the get go, we met when he joined the team, I think it was 86. I come over from the San Antonio Spurs and we just had, we have so much in common um, that I'm, I talk to him almost every day by text or some other method. Um, other than that, well, and then I wrote a book with Bill Wennington um, I was approached by a publisher asking me if I could get one of the bulls to write a book about his experiences and John didn't want to do it. And, and I knew that Bill had good stories and was a good storyteller. So, um, I was the ghost writer on his book. 
Um, and we still talk, actually, we still get checks every once in a while. So we talk about that. Um, I was really close. I wasn't close, but I was, I had a decent relationship with Scotty Pippen. Um, I did something early on. I realized that when Michael talked after a game, if he said anything important, I would know about it because there were a thousand reporters and everybody would be talking about it. So while everybody else was sort of gathered around Michael to get one quote from him, I was always going over and talking to Scotty. And I know that Scotty appreciated the fact that I was giving him as much regard as I gave Michael. And I think that may have had something to do with the fact that why Scotty gave me the story in 98, 97, the fall of, uh, fall of 97, um, because we had that relationship, you know? Um, so I guess I'm, I might have done something right there. Yeah, definitely. And from watching the documentary, I could listen to Michael and Scotty talk for years. I mean, it, especially Scotty. He just seems like such a personal guy, great guy to sit and have a conversation with. Dennis Rodman, on the other hand, seems like he could possibly be a little more difficult. What did you think about Dennis when he arrived from San Antonio? And uh, did that change after a few years in Chicago? Well, I knew Dennis from when he was playing um, for the Pistons and the Bulls and the Pistons were playing their big matches early in the 90s, late 80s and early 90s. And I hated him. I, I hated the way he played. I hated, um, you know, he uh, pushed Scottie Pippen into a basketball stanchion to the point where Scottie still has a scar um, from that injury. And I hated the way I hated the way he played. I hated the physical nature of it. Um, I, I had no appreciation for him at all. And then Jerry pulled the trigger on that trade. And I, you talk about a transaction, a trade. I don't know if there's how many times there's been a trade where you just, it just drops your jaw. Yeah. The Bulls getting Dennis Rodman. It wasn't so much what they got for him. I mean, they traded Will Purdue. That, that wasn't the point. The point was Dennis Rodman was going to be a member of the Bulls. It was a really big deal. And um, uh, I was not looking forward to working with Dennis. Um, you know, this was before Dennis became weird. I mean, he was always a little out there, but it wasn't until he got to the Bulls that he started, you know, marrying himself and coloring his hair. And I mean, he colored his hair in San Antonio, but making it more of a big deal in Chicago. He got weird in Chicago. That being said, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, Dennis is one of the most interesting people you could ever want to talk to. He is, he's um, thoughtful and um, self-deprecating and, and more intelligent than he gives credit for. And the thing, I'll tell you, the part from the documentary that my sons and I really appreciated was the amount of time Dennis spent talking about how he rebounded. Um, he, as far as rebounding was concerned, he was a clinician. He, he studied tape to see if a shooter had a tendency to shoot short or long. Um, he knew whether a shooter had a tendency to shoot straight at the basket so that the ball would bounce off directly from the rim or put arc on his shot so that the ball would be bouncing up. He, he was a scientist in regards to rebounding. And um, that's that and his defense are why he's in the Hall of Fame. And you wonder how many players there are that are in the hall of fame that have a scoring average as low as Dennis's because scoring wasn't something that he cared to do. And it was funny too. The other thing that we know, and you know, if you ever see it in the rest of the documentary, every time Dennis scored, it was a big deal. <laughs> he was so excited every time that he put 
the ball in the basket, but he never tried. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't what he wanted to do. And um, I, I really when if the locker room was quiet and relatively empty and I had a choice between talking to Michael or talking to Dennis, I very often chose Dennis because he was a very interesting guy and I needed to get to know him better. It was funny. Um, during that 97, 98 season, there was a time when he and I happened to be walking at the United center together from the locker room to, uh, the floor. And we're just shooting, you know, just talking. And he stops and he says to me, do you, do you think I'll get into the hall of fame? (laughs) And I just, wow. Interesting question, Dennis. So. Oh, man, it, that's remarkable, the work that went into the rebounding part of it. And like you said, I mean, Dennis Rodman, I've seen all kinds of old clips. I watch the NBA religiously now. He may be one of the only famous players that I've never seen a clip or anything of him just taking a jump shot. Like, I don't know what his <laughs> shot actually looks like. Yeah, um, he would do it on occasion. He actually, um, you'd have to look it up, but he had a couple of threes in his career. Oh, he would get a couple of threes when he was with the Bulls. Um and that was hilarious as well. Uh, and you know, there was a there's a shot in the documentary of him shooting a free throw, and it just wasn't he wasn't that wasn't his game. Yeah, shooting wasn't his game. Understandably so. Well, this is my final question. Uh, this upcoming week on the Last Dance, they're going to cover Jordan's first retirement in the middle of his prime. How weird did that feel at the time? And what was that period like covering the Bulls without MJ? When it was announced. It was obviously from a working standpoint, I realized that I wasn't going to have much time to myself for the next week. A lot of stories that had to be written. And um, I mentioned in the article in the Daily Herald this morning about Tony Kukoc, um, when they announced it, the team for some reason decided that they should have all of Michael's teammates behind him as he announced his decision. And that included Tony who had never played with Michael. He had just come over to join the team after being mistreated the way that he was by Scotty and Michael in the uh, Barcelona Olympics. And when Michael made the announcement, Tony started to cry. He had left millions of dollars back in Italy to play for the Bulls. He had left his family, which were was living in Croatia in the midst of a horrible war, to come to play for the best basketball team in the world, for the best basketball players, and Michael was quitting. Um, Then something struck me, and I realized that Michael Jordan was retiring. And and if somebody says, I'm retiring, you give them the benefit of the doubt that they're actually retiring, even though lots of athletes don't keep their word, including Michael. But I wrote a column saying... Congratulations. You have retired at the very top of your game. And the number of players who have done that would be two, Barry Sanders and Michael. Nobody else, nobody else does that. Nobody else, everybody else allows us to see them in a more human form. And at that point in 1993, Michael was retiring and I wrote the column and I had a bunch of people say, A, shut up, idiot. We don't want Michael to retire. And two, they gave me credit for saying something that nobody else really had an interest in. Nobody else wanted to see Michael retire at the top of his game. And at that point, he was. The fact that he came back two years later, you know, that's part of history. And when I wrote what I wrote, I had no idea that he was going to be able to, that Krause was going to be able to create a team 
that allowed Michael to win three more titles. Um, and, you know, if that had happened, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. Um, but uh, it was a huge, it was a huge deal. And, and Michael was very good at making headlines. And he, that day, he certainly did. It's, it's so hard to believe the best player in any major U.S. sport just leaving at, with so much left, clearly, to offer the game as he goes on to win three more championships. Which is why, which is why there were so many questions about his motivation. Um, the fact that people thought he was being, had been suspended by the NBA for gambling, um, that would have been a bigger story. Although somebody else mentioned this, it's now 20 some years since that happened. If Michael had actually been suspended by the NBA, somebody would have spilled the beans, right? I would think. Um, and then before Michael retired, of course, his father gets murdered and that became a better, more understandable motivation for retiring. Um, and it would have been very hard for Michael to play the 93-94 season with the memory of his father's passing. I mean, we were playing the Charlotte Hornets four times a year, twice in Charlotte. So he would have been going to North Carolina twice a year. And the questions about his father's murder and, you know, in that state would have been very difficult. So, you know, that sort of explains why that happened. Sure. Well, Mr. McDill, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. It was an absolute pleasure. One of the coolest things I've ever done. I wish you the best with uh, the rest of The Last Dance and anything else that you ever decide to do. <laughs> Thanks. Um, say hi to Clark for me when you see him. I will. I, I will. Him and my sister just bought some land. They're building a house. So I think Clark's going to be around for a while. Wow. That's great. Congratulations to them. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Kent.